Welcome. It's an extraordinary privilege to be able to introduce you to three leading lights of British theatre um, here as part of this Humanitas um, series of events under David Edgar as our Humanitas Professor of Drama at Oxford. Um, I should explain that Humanitas is a series of visiting professorships at Oxford and Cambridge intended to bring leading practitioners and scholars, and they don't get much more leading than we have here, um, to both universities to address major themes in the arts, social sciences, and humanities. The series was created by Lord Weidenfeld, and the program is managed and funded by the Weidenfeld Hoffman Trust, with the support and series of generous benefactors, and coordinated in Oxford by the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. Um, and for the Humanitas Visiting Professor in Drama, our very generous donor is Andre Hoffman, to whom we are very, very grateful indeed. Um, it wouldn't be an exaggeration whatsoever to say that British theatre would not be the same without De David Edgar. Um, through his experiments and innovations in form, right the way from early agitprop theatre through an extraordinarily ambitious and wonderful adaptation of Nicholas Nickleby, um, to a whole host of plays. Um, and I've noticed the word, the word prolific always seems to be an insult in some way. So I won't say prolific because it always seems to suggest quantity rather than quality, whereas what you get with David is more than 60 published plays um, in which his political analysis, I find, is not only astute and acute and extraordinarily informed, but also quite eerily prescient, um, as various revivals of some of his plays have started showing now that he was, didn't just get it then, he got where it was heading as well. And he's also helped shape modern theatre by founding the first MA in playwriting at the University of Birmingham, of which he was head and professor um, for many years. April DeAngelis is an inspirational and innovative playwright who has been one of the foremost playwrights at the head of a kind of new feminist wave of theatre that came in in the 1980s and again transformed British theatre, I think. Um, she's worked with a huge number of different companies, including Payne's Plough, Out of Joint, um, Monstrous Regiment, the RSC, etc., 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 and has walked, worked across an extraordinary range of different genres, including libretti, verse plays, adaptations, um, and has produced such luminous and wonderful works as a couple of my absolute favourites, Playhouse Creatures, um, and the vastly successful Jumpy, which was described by critics as generous, funny, deliciously rude, and at times piercingly moving or by my sister-in-law who came out of the theatre and said, oh my God, that's my life! Um, in a combination of horror and the sense that April must have been following her around for the last few years to have got that. Um, David Gregg is a powerhouse of not just Scottish theatre, but theatre around the world. Um, he's worked with the Royal Court, the RSC, the National Theatres of Scotland and England, um, and in plays such as Europe, The Architect, The Events, Cosmonauts' Last Message, Dunsinane, he's produced analyses of the changing political landscape of Scotland, of Britain, and of the much wider world with wit, compassion, and searing insight. 
So welcome um, to all of them. It's an extraordinary privilege to have them here. Um, and it's absolutely true that the British theatre would not only not be the same without them, but far, far poorer. So can you join me in welcoming them? But what of new plays? Is the credit of our own age nothing? Must our own times pass away unnoticed by posterity? Which is a line in, in Laughing Matter by April D'Angelis, which is a play set in the 18th century. Uh, and, and have things changed since discussed? Well, they have changed extensively. Um, part of this week is a slightly, uh, the question being asked by this week is a slightly re-inflected version, uh, not but what of new plays, but of what, what of new plays, in other words, uh, uh, the debate between uh, new plays and other forms of making uh, new work. But this evening, uh, although I want to come on to talk a little bit about, about collaboration and particularly David's work, uh, with suspect culture uh, at the end of the discussion before we open it out. Uh, nonetheless, what I want principally to talk about is what playwrights do to, to devote the kind of attention which, which, which has rightly been devoted to other processes uh, to the process of the individual writer sitting alone with their screen, again, discuss. Um, we had a kind of prologue to this last autumn when um, I invited a group of writers to the, uh, to the Royal Court to talk about exactly that and doing it sort of round a table in private so they could say what they liked, whereas this evening we're, you know, public realm. Um, and it was David Eldridge and James Graham and Nicholas Wright uh, and Roy Williams uh, and indeed April, uh, uh, and uh, Rachel de la Haye was booked but, 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 but was delayed filming um, and, and she's coming to our session on Saturday. Um, April got very irked by the fact that I referred to uh, uh, playwriting skills at one point as a box of tricks uh, and so thereby won her place to be invited to Oxford today to get irked again if necessary. <laughs> um, and uh, I've always hugely admired David's work and enjoyed talking about him. A, a lot of our conversations taking place in Plovdiv, which is, which is Bulgaria's second city, where we went on a British Council financed event. Uh, and I talked, used to talk to Rachel a great deal when she came to teach at Birmingham uh, as part of the playwriting studies, and she then subsequently took over, uh, took over the course when I moved on. So we spent a lot of time talking about, about structure and dialogue and. Uh, and characterization and the various bits of the craft and, and, and uh, I'm looking forward very much to hearing um, to hearing some of that again and, and, and I'm sure many things for the first time. The, the first question I want to ask, which, which I asked in, 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 in London as well, um, is quite simple and I'll ask it of David's first because unless April's career has gone on a completely different course in the last four months, her answer may be, may be akin to the last one, which is and I'm talking now about the work that you've written individually, not the suspect culture work. Do you plan? How much do you plan? Do you chart plays out? Do you know at the beginning what the end's going to be? 
Well, that depends. I mean, that depends on when a play begins, doesn't it? Because um, obviously, uh, if you mean when, when do you sit down to to write and you think I am writing this play now? Then yes, I have quite. I have quite a bit. Um, but I, this, that period seems almost unimportant. By the time I've got there, you know, really the play's nearly done in a way because what's happened by that point is there's been a period that can be up to 10 years where I've been interested in a thing or I've had a thought that's been, um, in, you know, going around my mind or an emotion or something or an image and... I, and eventually that starts to maybe it's a play and maybe even it gets a name attached to it, which I would sort of usually becomes what I think of as the birth moment of the play. Do you mean a title? Yeah. 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 And, then, and then there comes a process, which I wouldn't say was planning actually, it's, it's sort of something else where I, I try to think of all of the things about this um, area or uh, this idea, and I, uh, I might write, or I just, I might write something about a fragment, or I might have a little line of dialogue, or I might just write a thing that could happen, until eventually I've got a kind of pile of stuff, none of which is, a, none of it's a play, and it's just a pile of stuff, but sort of somewhere in it, if you looked at all that pile of stuff, is, is the ghost of something that would be a play. And that's when I start doing diagrams. But usually, I'll sort of condense my answer because it's quite cute, but usually what I then do nowadays, this wouldn't have been true in the past, but it's been true for the last sort of six or seven years, is I separate the idea of story from the play. So the story, I, I keep trying to tell the story. People say, what, what are you working on? And I'll try, I'll say, a play in which a man does X, Y, or Z. And, and so I diagram the story. So the story has a mm. diagram. And I know the beginning, middle, and end of the story. But I don't know how I'm going to do the play of it at all. So with the events, possibly to be salient, I, I knew the story of the events, but I didn't know how it was going to be structured as a play. Now, the events is, is, is a play about Andre Breivik, the, or, or inspired by, inspired if that's by. the right verb. Um, the, the Norwegian neo-Nazi who, who killed very large numbers of people. Um, and David, um, it ended up being a two-hander uh, with a choir. A choir uh, um, and just describe, I think it's fascinating, how that came about. Well, I mean, it, it, how it came about, how the, the, the two-people idea, the one-man, one-woman idea, and indeed the choir idea, how you got to that. Well, it's salient in terms of my process because it's almost emblematic of the way that the process tends to work. So the, the inspired by came because I found the event so troubling and so I was reading all about it and I was reading his manifestos and I, I, I was just very interested in it. And it also came at a long period of having been very interested in Norway, which sometimes anyone, I don't imagine there are many keen aficionados of my work will know that I try to get Norway in every play somewhere. And often Norway occupies the role of a sort of heaven, a kind of place, a paradisical place, 
that characters yearn for. Um, and it's often just a private joke on my part, but there is a truth to it. I, obviously, you know, to some extent, if you're Scottish, you look over the sea at this social democratic paradise and so forth. So to have a wound like Braving did at the heart of this personal emblem was troubling. And, and so I was approached by Roman Gray, the director, who said, would you be interested in doing something about that? And I immediately said yes. And so we went and researched, and that was the period of gathering all the stuff. Uh, in, in Norway? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, we had a period yeah. in Norway, but also, uh, to be honest, in Norway, the moment where the, the first thing that happened was um, I was so depressed by it, I couldn't bear it. I mean, I just, in the end, I thought there's nothing to be done here. I don't have anything to say. It's just so dispiriting. But the dramaturg's mother, the dramaturg had to pick up her mother from choir practice and then take us to the next meeting with an expert in serial murderers, you know. And I was feeling really just dispirited by humanity. And then, but she said, well, just wait here. Well, with my mum's not finished the choir, you know, got another sort of 20 minutes to go. So we were in a little primary school with just a, a local community choir and they were just finishing up their Christmas rehearsal and the feeling of just bathing in something that was good about humans <laughs> was so overwhelming that that was the first bit where I thought well I can only do this if there's a choir because that's the only way that I can be as horrible as it's going to need to be in order to tell the truth. And, and, and it, Remind us how the choir works. I mean, not, not in terms of it's a different choir every night, though it is, which is fascinating in itself, but how, how the, what structure the play, the play ended up being. Okay, well, so there's two, it's quite Greek, and that was something that came early because I had this vision of, I thought about a, a character who wanted to understand what had happened mm -hmm. after a horrible event of the type that Breivik committed. And I was interested in an idea which you could say, at its simplest, I thought of it as, what if the impulse to understand something was as destructive and full of furious energy as the impulse to revenge? So imagine that you'd been the victim of something and instead of wishing to avenge, you wish to understand, but you wish to understand with, with, a, with that kind of Fury. That that would be an interesting idea, and and so the first characters who emerge was the priest Claire, or fe a, a female priest, and that was sort of a joke as well, but not a joke's too much. But it was a little game where I thought, well, who is the person in the world who would be the worst person to sort of To, who would be the who would be the person to challenge? Who would be the person who would you know the line about we must condemn more and understand less? Yes. Do you remember that line? Well, I think it was John Major who said that or something. But imagine the person who would be the most inclined to disagree with that. And so I thought, well, a really liberal priest, you know, that was a good start. Um, and I sort of pushed her really hard. And I made her, I think she's like vegan or something. I mean, even if, I don't know if that ended up in the play, but in my notes about her, every choice that you could make as a human, I mean, she like, her, her, part, her, her gay partner makes yurts. That's, it, 
but I know a yurt maker. I mean, I'm very fond of yurt makers. I'm, not, I'm genuinely not laughing at yurt makers, but that's a world in which you would definitely not start with the idea that the thing to do with Anders Breivik is to string him up and, you know, tear his guts yeah. out. So she was there, and she had a line which... Um, so I knew that it began with her saying, for some time now I've tried to understand... I've been, for some time now I've been reflecting upon the events. The line doesn't turn up in the play as it happens, but that was the line that started it. And then, and then, so the choir, oh, hello. So the choir, um, the, the, the choir sort of, so I had her and the choir, and then I was writing quite a lot of material for her and quite a lot of material for the choir, but there was, I knew there was something missing, and, um, a small and noticeable thing about Norway is that people don't like to say Anders Breivik's name. They, they call him him, or they call him, sometimes they call him ABB, and sometimes they call him the boy. I don't think anyone does it consciously. It's just, it's almost like that really primal thing of not, just not wanting to give him even the syllables, you know. And so, I thought of this character called the boy, who would be the perpetrator, and and I, I just thought, well, he's got to be on stage as well, and, and and I didn't want any other characters. It seemed very cluttered, so what happens is the boy plays the boy, but he also plays every other character who appears in the play, as as the character Claire tries to understand the events, including Claire's lovers. Yes, yes, he plays every every um, every role. Yeah. And kind of Nick Griffin and... Yeah, he plays a... Fa yeah. I met a nice fascist um, in Norway. Uh, it was very interesting. There's a quite a right-wing party that Breivik was associated with, and I, I met one of their, um, you know, sort of... I suppose one of the intellectuals behind them, and I met him in a pub, and he was just... He was very sweet, and he kept... He was worried about his childcare arrangements and he kept saying I just have to because my wife's at the nursery and he every, and then just towards the end he said something I, I, I was saying to him that um, it's interesting because what you're wanting to defend is Norway's uh, tolerance and so your, your feeling is that Islamic people coming in are threatening your tolerance and the other conundrum that you face is that you don't like Norway's stultifying sort of single party, party line consensus social mm. democracy. And I said, ironically, the thing that will most fragment and create the kind of space that you need is a, is a multicultural society. Mm. And he got really cross <laughs> me. Anyway, sorry, that, so he, he, he and appeared It, it, the, it, it an ended up, just to be clear for people who... who, who didn't see it. I mean, it ended up with him shooting up the choir. I mean, that, that not, was the not the not the not the Nazi. No, no not no, the no, person no, you were talking no, to, no, but, no, but no. the character, the boy. Um, well, it starts. He, that yes. has happened, and, yes. and you you you. He but, I mean, has, the, the, he has shot the, up. The Claire incident. runs a multicultural choir, or yeah. ran it, and he has come in, and um, and and sh and done a kind of massacre. Yeah. And, it, and the play begins with her, he is in prison and she is trying to understand what has happened. And it follows her fra very fragmentedly over a period of time as she sort of wrestles with what has happened. April, you've done, um, I, I, I think, I mean, 
very crudely, you've done a number of historical plays uh, in, with, with reclaiming history in a feminist way, looking at, looking at, at uh, previously invisible figures like, like uh, um, Restoration uh, Women Actors uh, and others. Uh, and you've also written a number of contemporary plays which are clearly drawn from the experience of being a, of being a woman living in London now. Um, do you plan, do you chart, to, and uh, are those two different in this respect? H how, do you, um, how do you get from, from the initial notion to uh, the point of starting writing? I think it's interesting where, you know, where a play uh, needs research, say a historical play, in a sense you, you've got a position outside the material. Um, and so you, there is a lot of research. I remember uh, in writing A Laughing Matter, which was about Garrick and Garrick's theatre, um, it was almost overwhelming because I didn't know much about it. And there's so many figures that I needed to be in the play, like uh, Dr. Johnson. Um, uh, so it meant reading, uh, not just about him, but reading, trying to get a sense of his voice. So you had to, to read um, he, lots of essays in The Rambler, I think, that he wrote. So, so that, that, that there was a kind of so much research there that you felt like it's going to topple on top of you and you're not going to be able to kind of dig your way out of it. But at, um, but at some point, I think the kind of play that you can research when the material's outside yourself, you just get to a point where you feel like you're absolutely replete with it and somehow you just have to stop and then you're sort of desperate to write it in a, in a way because you've done enough to understand the world. And I... Um, which is different from if you're writing a play when I was writing Jumpy, which was about all I knew that I wanted to write a play about kind of someone of my age, a woman, the kind of experiences I'd had as growing up as a, fe you know, being a feminist, very identified with feminist politics in the 80s when I was at university, and having a daughter who didn't identify with those politics at all, didn't seem to be part of her life, and how that, so it was, it, all I had there was the dynamic, and I think that's a really, that's very important to me, and I'm sure to um, most writers, actually, that, that you're, you're trying to find a very live or a live dynamic, which um, is, is, you know, somehow the contradictions, the push and pull within the characters, and each character that you've, these two characters, say a mother and a daughter that you've paired, they're just going to spark each, each other off, you know, every time you turn them, they, they meet a new facet of the other that's going to kind of create some conflict, which is what you're looking for. So in that sense, it was more about finding the dynamic. And I had, in writing the contemporary play, I, I, I couldn't really plot out the story because I didn't know what would happen when I would put the two people together in a room. Um, I didn't... Uh, and in a way, I think part of the joy of, of writing can be like improvising as an actor, where you just you decide, oh, uh, I'm going to put these people in this situation, this has happened, what, what's going to happen now? And just see what the scene throws up and, and allow that to, um, cr you know, create a shape for you, to create a, create a dilemma to kind of increase the conflict. Um, so you do set them off and, and yeah, see, see where they take you? Yes, which I think is a little bit different from a in a sense, a historic play, when you're, you're all trying to tell the story of the first actresses, well, you know, you kind of, you have a sense of the plot or story, as David talk, talked about, kind of forms itself more easily, I think, than something when you're right, you're really sort of 
try and investigate your own experience, uh, which I think is much more kind of occluded to you as a person. And it, I mean, it, the end of a play isn't necessarily its meaning anymore, but, but, but it's a fairly good place to start. What happens in Jumpy, spoiler alert, is <laughs> that um, you expect that, that we're invited to believe that the parents' worst fears about the daughter doing all the things that teenage daughters do, getting pregnant, doing drugs, uh, uh, dropping out of university or not going to it, none of those things actually occur, and she ends up, she, she ends up surviving her parents as opposed to her parents surviving her in a way. Yes. Uh, now, did you know that was where you were going? No, I didn't, but I always had a real sense that, um, that was, I suppose, part of the theme of something that your, or your attitude towards something, that I, I felt very much that, um, I, m I remember reading a few years earlier, it's really interesting listening to David saying things can take 10 years and where does something really start, about uh, the, the fact that there were some places where young people gathered that communities didn't like, so they had this really high-pitched noise, like an alarm that'd go off that only young people can hear, that was actually really unpleasant. And I was thinking, what kind of society is creating these kinds of vices for their own young people? And that, I found that sort of appalling. I just couldn't imagine the sort of imagination. And then a council would employ it. Uh, and then I started thinking, well, what are we projecting onto young people? I suppose, and, th and therefore, I suppose, in this play, I always, you know, part of the work that, you know, the mother's anxiety, why isn't the, the daughter, why, why uh, she's so politically incorrect, if you like, and then kind of thinking, well, you know, it, it really kind of unpacking that character and making them the, examining, kind of putting the lens the character would like to shine on the daughter back onto the mother or something. That sort of uh, ironically, and, and, and so and I of knew course, that was going to happen. I mean, realistically, because you're a middle-aged woman with a with a yeah. with a teenage daughter or not, an, not ex, an ex an ex teenage an ex daughter. Teenager, yeah. So it's obviously <laughs> you, you you're in a way also putting the spotlight back on yourself. Yes, and I think that's really. Imp I mean, when I was doing uh, before I wrote this play, I was a bit stuck, and I was thinking, well, what a you know, how do you how does one be a writer? Which I think is a question that's always going to come up. It's not like you know, ideas come very neatly and you think, oh, I'll do this process on this idea. And I mean, it always seems to me like you're just like in a sort of crisis, <laughs> like, well, what now and how do I do this? And um, it was just this thing of like, I think I'd got to a point of, of I just have to be really honest, you know what I mean? And, and, and somehow, and really excavate myself and not be frightened and not be frightened of the ideas that you push away or so about yourself or... I mean, I, th I, don't I, I think that's really, I wanted just to, do, because a few things really resonate yeah. with what you said. And, and so the, the first thing that occurred to me, of course, is that every play for me can only exist if there's a thing I don't know the answer to, a genuine, there has to be a genuine question for me. Um, and a huge amount of this stuff is just pulling away the things you do know the answer to, actually. That's your, your, your yes. honesty thing, I think, is really important as well. That There's a lot of it for me now is just, is just realising that a lot of stuff you think, you think. <laughs> a lot of stuff you think you think, you don't really think. Yes, You're not being good. honest. And so there's quite a lot of that until you mm. find the question that you, don't, you genuinely don't know. And then there's another side where I sort of scattergun voices. I don't assign character names even. I just write, I just see what comes. And that's your process of almost dynamics. Yes. Somewhere in it, you start to notice that there's a voice that seems to want to speak. And somewhere in that, often coming out of dialogue, 
you'll mm. start to see where your characters, who they are. And of course, they're really you in a way, but, but, but you can't find it that way. You have to sort of find it by externalizing it somehow. You have, of course, been you in a play, because you, in, in, in San Diego, you were a character. The, the character killed off quite early, quite on, early in on in the, the, in, in, in the evening and then <laughs> hanging above the action in a kind of satirical version of the author God. Um, but I wanted to talk about another play with a, with a very frac like San Diego, but w with a very fractured structure, which is the cosmonaut's last message to the woman he once loved in the former Soviet Union. And having said that without looking at, down at that, is, 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 I'm admiring myself. Um, <laughs> but that, that play is a multi-stranded play. Um, I read a play called Testing the Echo, which is about uh, citizenship tests, and for the because I structured to death, and I, it was a series of five or six different situations of people for very different reasons, uh, learning the things you have to learn in order to pass the test to become a British citizen, and I decided to write each story out in its totality and then intercut them, which was a, actually a rather exciting process because you at a moment when you think you're being quite mechanical, which is, you know, putting, you know, shaping things, you were actually being, you were actually creating the drama because the drama became about juxtaposition, which of course, and you didn't have any juxtaposition when you were writing it originally. Now, with Cosmonaut, Cosmonaut involves a whole, I mean, there are indeed two cosmonauts. Uh, there's a married couple. Uh, the woman is a speech therapist. She works with a patient. Uh, there is a Norwegian called Eric. Uh, there is um, there's a there's a lap dancer. There's there's a whole variety of different there's various proprietors of bars, and they meet and knock into each other. I mean, did you write? I mean, did you write the whole of the uh, the married couple and then the whole of the? No, that in fact again this relates to something that April said that really rung with me. You talked about something that I think of as being like a dance between two sides of oneself as a writer. You said improvisation. Um, so for me, I will have stuff, but really the writing, so I will have things that are ideas or seem thoughts, but, but, but then you have to, then you're almost performing it to yourself as you write somehow. You're, you're in a performative zone as much as anything else. And then you come out of that and look at it again and edit it or shape it or cut it or change it. So Cosmonaut was a deliberate, I, uh, again, I got very blocked, I was very stuck. And so I decided to do a game where I would write a play where I absolutely did not know what the next scene would be. And I was not allowed to think of it. But, but I did have a kind of basic premise, which was two cosmonauts um, in space. It was slightly inspired by the moment, or was it? Sometimes I think this, I might get this out of time. But the, you remember when the Russian government changed, the Soviet Union ended, but there were two cosmonauts yes. still up in the space station. So the first line is, they have forgotten us. And I just thought, you know, in all the chaos down on Earth, they've forgotten that there's two cosmonauts, you know. <laughs> what would that be like? So that was really, so that line was there. And I thought about the idea of looking down and then looking up. So I thought every scene, all I'll do is I'll, every scene will bounce back to the cosmonauts, like a little signal from space. Yeah. They'll begin and they'll look down and then someone will be down and it will end with them looking up and then down. And 
and I just followed that rule until I got to the end of the play. And of course, a play so you, you've, emerged. So you've got that structural principle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what happens in the play is that almost all the characters meet an unexpected other character. So, so it yes. is a bump, it's a, you know, a globalization play. People yeah. bump into each other in unexpected ways and you end up with the two characters that you never thought would, would meet yeah. at all meeting, uh, partly because you think one of them, you thought one of them was dead. Yeah. And um, I mean, that seems to me something that, um, you know, uh, a writer of a certain generation would plan out meticulously. Yeah. Did you go back and plan that in, or no. it just... No, I, I, I did, by the time of the second act, I didn't... Um, no, I, no, I mean, it was a very conscious... It, it, I mean, there was a slightly ludicrous premise behind it, which was that I observed that when I m consciously made connections, the connections were less interesting than the connections I unconsciously made. Mm. And I also observed that it seemed to me increasingly impossible that to not have connections in one's writing. So to put it more simply, the brain, my brain, can't seem to have things in it that actually aren't connected. They may seem connected. I'm interested in this box of tissues and I'm interested in what's going on in Greece. They may not, I may not see why they're connected, but if my brain is occupied with them, there's something, somewhere, somewhere, there's a principle. And, and so therefore, I, I thought, I'll trust my brain. I'll and just do that, a, and I mean, then something will happen, and it will be connected. Both of you have objects, you know, which are set up, and they're sometimes lines, and they're sometimes props, which then get more and more freighted. And, and in the case of Cosmocourt, it's a pack of, it's a pack of cards with women yeah. on them. Yes, uh, and, and, and it's it's. Uh, playing cards and, and, and um, uh, you know it's, it's the, the, the cosmonauts have them and they're, they're that's all know, they've got left uh, yeah. and, and in terms of their sexuality and everything else um, but, but that seems that seems to to me to invite the audience to say you know whenever you see the cards make a connection there's another thing which is this I think at this my next statement will put everyone will just think well you're 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 really, you know, um, off, off base, you've gone mad. I think that there is an element of writing for me which is much more connected to a slightly transcendental thing. So what I mean by that is, unfortunately, I have to try and arrange situations where my very rational and uh, educated and thoughtful mind is forced by some pressure of um, the uh, that perhaps I've set myself like this task of writing, but not knowing where I'm going, to, to lose my to right. lose myself essentially, and and because that's very that's that is a very hard thing to do. It's very very hard to trick yourself into not supervising your own work. So that for me the. 90% of the process of writing plays finding ways to, to trick myself into leaving the room essentially um, and and really the cosmonaut process was was just one way of doing that and of course you can't repeat it unfortunately the next time you write a play my my rational conscious brain mm. 
goes, oh, do that trick again, that one, and, and then suddenly I'm back in the room supervising. And so that, that, I think that's a sort of central bit for me about your mm. improvisation. Yes, how, I mean, do, do you recognise that at all? I mean, uh, No, uh, actually. <laughs> that's what's really fascinating. I think that's amazing. That's sort of a, but interesting, because you're obviously discovering a process of uh, how not to be over-controlling over or to find... But um, I think the really interesting thing about... Well, I think when I know... I certainly know when a character surfaces. I mean, I, I, I think characters possibly aren't even very fashionable anymore. I feel quite old-fashioned talking about characters, but that's or a voice then. I mean, I suppose it's what you attribute to the word character that might be over. But um, you can suddenly just have a voice that you delight in writing, and it's really fun, and you just want them to speak all the time. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, don't know. That's, very, that's you know, e even... I mean, both of you, in a way, and, and perhaps particularly David has been talking about, you know, I realised that this, it had to be a choir and so on. And, and interestingly, I know you went with Ramin and you, you always credit your directors, but I mean, there wasn't a we in there. Um, uh, that, you, you know, you were talking about a, a, an instinct which made you feel this is right. And April's just said that there's a moment when a character through enjoying them or... Yes. And, 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 and this notion, I mean, I'm... I have some problems with it, but the sort of Michelangelo, um, you know, the sculpture is in the stone and it's just a matter of finding it, mm. uh, which I do have some problems with, but, mm. but, but it, it, does, it does reflect a truth that, that you do recognise something. Now, what, mm. what is recognising it works? I mean, what, what is, for you, when you, when you say, I've mm. got this, this is now, I mean, in, in, at Royal Court, you said mm. that there's a moment when you feel I've got three more scenes. Yes, yeah. W what have you recognised in your writing which says yeah. this is a play? Well, that, I suppose that's, I mean, the three more scenes idea comes from the fact that, you know, you might be investigating this material, you have a dynamic, you have a, you know who your characters are, you're trying to put them in situations of conflict to kind of, and, and you know, you, you have these themes, you know, that, that, that also insistent, insistent, insisting themselves. So, and for me, but you, one scene on its own is not, it's not, it's not a play, um, and it, it can stay, I mean, it's very infuriating sometimes to write a scene and think, that's a really good scene. It's got a lot, I, I, you just, you respond to it, you enjoy it, you like, but you can't make a story out of it. But sometimes what, you know, I think, you suddenly see a pathway out of that when you have, you realise that scenes fit together and you think, oh, okay. And then you start to see a story and a, a journey for a character and you can see that it's um, sufficient to the theme, perhaps. So, I mean, that's, in, in, that's, one, that's one thing. What was the other thing? Well, it, it, it's just what, what, the, it, what the instinct consists of. Yes. Because obviously, in a sense, an inst a dramatic instinct is... You know, it could be quite a conservative thing. Uh, you know, I, I know this scene will work because it's like this other scene that I wrote, or indeed this other scene that somebody else wrote. You know, that that you know that you know if you've got two delinquent lovers and somebody bursts in who shouldn't burst in, one knows that's going to be very dramatic. Yes. Um, uh, but also, I think there's a there's a much less, you know, quantifiable, a much less sort of rational way of just feeling this feels right and whether or not it's actually dangerous to start asking why that's the case. I, uh, there, there is a sort of commonly used metaphor amongst playwrights, I imagine, or at least certainly I, I've heard it, which is, you know, you're, 
you just know from knocking if it's solid or you know yeah um, and and the other metaphor I would use is musical so you I absolutely recognize your thing of uh, I think there's about three scenes left or I can't really explain it but I have the sense that that this is only two characters or something like that Th those feelings are they feel like I imagine a, a, a songwriter feels when the chord change just feels right and you 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 know you instinctively sense that it's what you need and of course a, but a really good song is always surprising isn't it if, it, if it's purely formulaic we we don't like it so that this again there's some sort of dance or tension between formulas which if you like would be your box of tricks you know things mm. we kind of know but yet also the that which is not that the your you know the the question that Ottoman heart sinks when it's asked I mean after do you use a barre is is what are, what are your influences and I can ask you this question because you've admitted it mm. uh, you've admitted that that San Diego is a kind of response to Thornton Wilder's Our Town, uh, and also the, um, uh, the Road of Tanks to Heine Muller play uh, was also in influential on a particular piece of yeah. work. Um, is that often the case? Always, Do you often always. Every, every play can only, one, it needs a title before I know it, it is a play. Mm. So there's an inchoate mass of material that I don't even know I have, and then a title appends, and that inchoate mass of material gets a little bit closer in. And, and then there is a moment when I think, who am I rewriting? Who, who is writing this play? Or where, who am I rewriting right. when, I rewrite, when I'm writing this play? Um, so uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, with the events, it was obviously an engagement with Greek drama. Um, I didn't, I, actually, for the events, I didn't have a particular play in mind, but it, I was very interested in chorus, two characters in front, you know, the revenge, all those very Greek sorts of themes. But yeah, I, I would always want there to be a play. I often think, often a question I'll ask myself is which Shakespeare play is this that I'm doing, or, or, or yeah. And April, you, I mean, you think about drama a lot because we've, mm. uh, and structure, and we've talked about it mm. in old plays, and you've mm. written a PhD, which yeah. involves studying a lot of plays. Mm. I mean, how, do you think, oh, this, this, is like, this is going to be like this one? No, I don't, actually. Um, I think we all have, I think, you know, you must, you know, our memories are, even if you're not consciously remembering things, you are on, on another level, you, you, you're, you have, you're full of recognitions. And I often, sometimes when I'm writing, even a pattern of dialogue, you think, I think, oh, this has been written before, but it hasn't, but I, I, it must be that, I, that somehow you have all these templates in you that, that you are kind of, that there are echoes uh, from. But I, 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 I will say one thing, actually, what I think, I actually think that when you're writing, all writing's really about pain actually, and that if you're not writing p real pain, you're not writing, and that somewhere there's got to be something really raw and emotional and un... For you. For everybody. Yeah. I, don't th I think that all writing's about that. It's about something that's not resolved, and what is not resolved? Well, pain, that's the thing, isn't it? So, I mean, that somewhere, if your characters aren't really plugged in to something 
something emotional, actually, whatever, emo you know, and I don't mean emotional in a kind of light, sort of cheap way. I mean the actual emotions that we all got to live with all the time. That's why we go to the theatre, to try and work out that stuff. And that, there's no writing without that. And that's what's hard, because who wants to plug into that? You know, I, that's, that's, I, I'm sure that's what gives people blocks. That's, that's, that, that's very interesting. It leads on to something I've said to you before, which is about a scene in The Positive Hour, which is oh, a yeah. contemporary play. And there's a group therapy scene in it. And the situation is that Nicola has difficulties. It's a women's, women's group. It's, there's four of them. And Nicola has difficulties with her father. She wants to go to university. Uh, and to go to classes, but her father is very controlling and keeps her in the room by threats that he's ill and all, all the ways that that making her feel guilty, guilt-tripping her. And uh, the leader of the group suggests they play that out, with Nicola playing herself, obviously, and somebody else playing the father. And uh, the woman playing the father doesn't play it fantastically well, and Nicola goes off. In other words, she's, she's not given enough to prevent her doing what she wants to do, which is to leave the house and go to her class. It's then suggested they swap over, and Nicola plays her father. And, of course, Nicola makes it completely impossible for the other person to go, and I think is liberated thereby, that by playing her father. Now, I've pointed out to April before <laughs> that this is the situation in the, first tavern, in the first tavern scene in Henry IV, Part One, where, where Hal and Falstaff do exactly the same thing, that they're rehearsing uh, Prince Harold's upcoming and probably difficult interview with his father about his reprobate lifestyle, and so they do a, a role play, as happens before Prime Minister's questions and debates and all sorts of things now, and, um, uh, uh, and, and Falstaff, um, uh, Falstaff does a sort of joke of saying, you must get rid of all of your followers except for one fat man whose name for the moment escapes me, and then Hal's outraged by that, so they swap. And so Falstaff is playing Hal, who is, as it were, his son in a way, pleading with Hal's real father. And it ends up with, with, with him begging his father uh, uh, not to banish him. Uh, and, and, and in one of the great Shakespeare lines, um, Hal's response as his father, it says, banish not him, thy Harry's company. He says, I do, in role, I will, out of role, and he's going to do it, and of course at the end of Henry of Part Two, that's what he does. Now, it's exactly the same device. I've asked you this many times, yeah. you've never answered it. Do you, <laughs> did you know that? I probably, I must have read Henry the Fourth or seen it, I'm sure, I mean I have now, I know, but when I wrote that play in the 90s, did, I think it must have been a sort of like, it wasn't conscious rewriting, but probably I'd, it was like one of those shadow templates things. But also, actually, isn't that, in essentially what all theatre is. It's all about role-playing in order to liberate, giving us distance, in order to liberate us or, and allow us to look at feelings, um, behaviours that uh, we want to kind of have some control or, or be able to think through or work through emotionally in some way. So that, actually that scene's a kind of uh, a metaphor for theatre, isn't it? So, I mean, it's... I mean, there's so much role-playing in theatre. I mean, I mean, it's a fantastically you know. effective way of turning two people into four people. Apart from yes, of course it is. And I mean, if you're playing, uh, uh, you know, 
It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a device. A and device well, is a brilliant in theatre, aren't they? I, I raise it because that's exactly what I wanted to. I mean, Arthur, and I'm not going to say box of trips. Arthur, a <laughs> repertoire of things that you that you the sort of David Gregg frequently used devices. Um, there are there are things that I would call craft or, or trick ideas that I come back to and try different ones for different things. Um, I'm just off the top of my head. A, an example would be the rule of opposites. So I have a thing which I call the rule of opposites, which is wherever I'm faced with a problem in a play, I. I sort of think, well, the answer is it's opposite. So you, you look at what its opposite is and you do that. And a good, a good example of that would be if, if, a, if you're not quite sure what a character has to say in a scene, but you know that he's wanting to tell his wife he wants to leave, a really good way of starting that might be with him starting by saying, I don't want to leave you. And that coming out of the blue is already an interesting scene because the wife's going, well, well who's to, you know, where did this come from? I don't want to leave you, but, you know, I mean, I need to think of all the reasons why it would be good if we stayed. And suddenly that's, so the rule of opposites is just a, but that, that's a sort of, um, that kind of comes after. Usually what's happened is you've, you've written the scene and then there's a bit where you're stuck and you might think, well, let's try the rule of opposites. Or there'll be other ones like, um, uh, I suppose structural ones like sudden rhythmic shifts or stuff like that. But I, I feel a bit funny about that. I don't feel funny about it. It's not to do with revealing one's tricks or anything like that, but it's more that they only... I think they only work when you're not thinking about using them almost. That you, it's like you're working and you just reach for whichever tool yeah. comes and it's there. Um, but when you're teaching, I think... I, I do. I mean, teaching is quite an interesting relationship. We have all done mm. teaching, and that's time, which is very valuable, but also very complicated, where you have to reflect upon what it is you actually do, and then try and find words for it and labels. And so that's when I realise well, that that's a trick that you can use. What do you like about mm. lists? There's lots and lots of lists in David Gray. Is there? Well, in, 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 in Europe, you've got, you, you represent three people who are talking about what they'd like to be, and that, that, that there's a succession of things oh. uh, that alternate. There's, there's, a, um, uh, uh, the, 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 there's, there's a battle between what's good about America and what might yes, be good about yes, Europe. Yes. I mean, you seem to like that, that... I think it just makes me laugh, usually. Yeah. I mean, uh, there is an element for me which... It's so rare. You're talking about pain, April, and I really recognise the pain, <laughs> the, the sense in which writing is sort of a very unpleasant job. But there are moments occasionally where you're, you're typing and you're the, audience, you're the audience of the thing that you're typing, and that can be very delightful. <laughs> if, you, if you start making yourself laugh... It's now, laughter is interesting. But, but, you know, you will. I, and I think often that mm. there's a thing where you, or you talk about mm. the character who's just fun to write, and they. Mm. But I think there are there are there are things that it's fun to write that it's like you, you didn't know you had that to say, but it's coming back to you. And I think this maybe just a, something. Just a moment on laughs, and I'm aware we want to we want to open it out, and I have one other big question to ask before we do. But but uh, Mr. Garrick is too tragic an act to consider to consider anything as unworthy as a laugh in Laughing Matter, and of course the play is called Laughing Matter. Um, do you 
I mean, I know none of us, because we're serious and important writers, would say, I'm writing this to get a laugh. But do you find laughter so, is an I, important... I would say that. What? I would say that. I, Nobody I, at the Royal Court did. They all denied <laughs> it. They, they said, it's absolutely wonderful. You see your play and all these lines which you thought were really funny. Don't get a laugh at all. How well, terrific. I and would, I thought, I would what? approach it entirely the other way around. I'd say all these lines I thought were just funny turn out to be interesting or so, you know. But, but you, you, I mean, what your plays are very funny, and indeed in Laughing Matter, you have a, a scene of farce, I mean, a classic farce scene with people in a basket and the whole, you know, the whole assembly. Mm. So, so, oh, right? <laughs> yes. Well, and jumping yes, is very yes, funny, yes. and it's recognition laughter. Mm, mm. Uh, but, I mean, how do you feel about humour? But I think it's the thing is that you, it has to be truthful, I suppose. I mean, of course, it's great to, if you're, try, if, you're, if, if you're writing in a genre, and I'm not writing tragedy, you know, you, you know that you, part of how you're, the discrepancy between the way people want to be seen and how they are behaving is, 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 is where humour comes from. A lot of the time, doesn't it? And and so that you, but that they, so it has to be sort of rooted in a sort of truth, doesn't it? And a lot of the, or it's people, you know, trying to overcome painful situa a situation that's been painful for them, embarrassing, or and, and in the telling, are, try, are trying to kind of overcome it or control it. So it's sort of a pay, maybe that, that's that's where pathos comes from. But um, you, you've uh, written a play in Jumpy, which is obviously autobiographical. In other plays, do, yeah. I mean, do you want to relate other plays to your own story? I mean, yes. is uh, that yeah. one of the locks that, that, that well, says... Well, I think that all plays are autobiographical. I think I said that before, but I think that's true. I think you're always writing your autobiography. I mean, what else can you write at some level? You know, why some... You said, you know, it's all part, parts of you, or Dennis Potter said you're always replowing the same ground, and that grounds your childhood, your... Mm. Basically, isn't it? Um, and your experiences, so that um, you, so that yeah, so that and sometimes you know I, I think you I, I can think of plays where I've been slightly they've 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 been emerging and suddenly they've gone on track and later on I thought oh yeah I know why that's on track because I'm writing that particular relationship or. I remember writing about a family in a Warwickshire family in the 1950s, and I was writing the scene. And I was going, this is about 15 years ago. I was thinking, this is really easy. This scene, that's so weird. I don't know any of these people. And after I'd written, I thought, oh, yes, that's my family. <laughs> of course, I know these people. I, I, why didn't I see it before? But I mean, so you know, so that's. Just I, I, I completely agree, and I have another. Um, the, the other thing, I, I was, for me, it's five years later. I don't see it at the time. I would. You, I mean, now I kind of know, but. But I would absolutely say, no, 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 this, this play is nothing. There's nothing autobiographical about this play. And then five years later, there's some revival or a student company do it somewhere, you go and see it. And, and the embarrassment as you see nakedly that what you have put on stage, you know, <laughs> the, the problem you were having at that time, you know. And, and you, you realise you just advertised it, you know, uh, uh, to, to the general population. But, but they, and they kindly don't, excuse me, they kindly don't mention it. It's almost as if the audience are kind enough and, not and, to and, go your And that includes crisis, plays know. like The Events, which oh, yes, you have yes. described, you know, this is a play about, I, I, I wanted to do this because of the subject matter, and I wanted to look at, you know, to yeah. understand everything is to, is to forgive everything, and I wanted to kind of challenge that and worry it. E even then, you think that in five years' time, you'll think and see it's it, about and your mother. Yeah, absolutely. It will really become clear. And the other element, and I, I, 
I wonder if any of you had experience of this, is that I think the author of the play, it's not just that you're writing a biography, but it's that the author of the play dies on the first night, um, in a way. Uh, uh, you, and, and, and from that point on, what you are is actually their, the author's estate. And your job is really to represent the work, but really you've got no business meddling in it or talking about its meaning or anything like that because you, you no longer know um, the... the so, so, for example, if your play gets done again, sometimes there's a big impulse to rewrite it. And in my experience, or certainly for my work, that is always wrong. It's, it's, you always are... You think you're fixing a problem that the play always had, but what you're doing, even if the play does have that problem and your analysis is right, your, your attempt to meddle with it is like, is like getting hold of another person's material. That there's something that the, the writing kind of completes. Uh, You've been talking about distance of various sorts, including the distance from your own work and giving up baby and all of that. Uh, you, you once said that, that when you finish a play, you put it in a drawer for three weeks. Uh, and then you read it again, and that that's really eloquent, and I think any, any writer can recognise that. Why is that so? Why don't you... What, what problems, what virtues can you see after it being out of your head for three weeks that you can't see the morning after? Very strange, I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting, because I've been writing a play recently, and I knew that I was trying to force two things together that didn't belong together, but I could not, for the life of me, let go. It was like, I was I, I, how, much, how much I told myself, you're writing two things that I'm going to do, I don't care, I want these two. And so I just put the play away, I dumped the play, and I thought, I have to leave this play, it's not working. And then some months went by, and I thought, well, before I bin this, press the bin, I'm just going to look at it again. And I thought, oh, you just put two things together, that, just take that bit out, and then you've got something. Oh, yeah, and it was so easy, but I don't know why, I mean... I think you're right, I think it's, it's about bizarre. emotional investment. Is that what something. it is? Or, maybe. Or, or is it... Mm. Yeah, maybe We've all been talking mm. really personally, and, and the word I has been used a great deal, and I think that's right, and, and we've been talking quite vaguely about incident, uh, instinct, and, and, you know, I sense that this is right, and, you know, habits of, of setting yourself, losing yourself... Uh, now, both of you have collaborated. Uh, you set up a company, uh, Suspect Culture, which did a, for which you wrote a huge number of shows. Some of those had some kind of script that you had written beforehand. One, at least, you know, was developed in the room, where, where everybody entered the room at the, the sort of pure devising process. Everybody enters the room at the beginning of the, of, 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 of the process. April, you've worked with four other brilliant women writers, a dazzling array of, of, of talent. Um, uh, Laura Wade, Tanita Gupka, Chloe Moss, and Stella Feely. Um, on a, now, the question I'm going to ask you both, and, and for, ask for quick answers because we need to open it out, is, is that in, what's different? I mean, what is different from the process? What does collectivizing the process how does that make it a different process? Because it sounds, from what you've said so far, it would be massively different, because almost everything has been about things that are quite difficult to define, which are going on from your, from your head. Well, first of all, each collaboration, you have to invent a process for it, and so it has a new process every time, and, and that is an enormous amount of work, and 
So, so there's no simple answer. I think to connect it to the previous stuff, I still feel that I am a writer. All that's happening is the, the hem. If I, if I said before, that you, you know that thing that if you could do anything, you end up doing nothing. It's just, it's, it's, it's uncreative. But if somebody says, write anything as long as it's only got one character, well, that's a bit easier, isn't it? And write anything as long as it's one character and the first line is, how did I get here? Well, that's a bit easier still. So a lot of my own process is trying to make my own boundaries. And then I can do something. I think, the, for me, the collaboration process is just another type of that, that you, you work together to find the, the way that you're hemmed in, and then you escape. And hopefully, your escape produces material that your collaborators are then able to use and is interesting and useful. Um, it's never been, even with suspect culture, it's never been my process to devise and use any of the words that anybody in the room said. I mean, I always made that very clear, that, that in fact, it, that, that the moment those words were said by somebody in the room, they became the only words I could not use, almost. And with, with, with Catch, mm. how, how, how interesting was the process in terms of looking about at how those other four brilliant women wrote? Um, it, it was... Uh, I mean, in a way, we just, I mean, we just all got on and we just, uh, we, we knew we had, and basically the Royal Court was doing a season, a 50-year season or something, and it hadn't any women in it at all. So they just got five of us and thought, oh, God, we'll just get them all to write something. And we all knew that, you know, and we were all like, oh, God, you know, typical. And um, we, we just had a lot of chats and we came up with a, an, a theme and a central character. We just decided we'd write two scenes each and we sort of spent some time um, putting together. I mean, it was, it's, it was, it was very, uh, I mean, I, that's what I remember of that. I did collaborate recently on something called Gastronauts, which was a play, another play upstairs at Royal Court, which did last Christmas. And I think the thing about that is you have to make decisions. It's very interesting. You have to make decisions very quickly. You don't have the luxury of time in a way. And we just said it's a restaurant. It's about food. It's going to be a restaurant. And, and it was, it was really writing. I think it's very interesting what you can do if you're pushed. I think that's, fascinating because sometimes you have too much time and you can get yourself kind of into these sort of well shall I you know luxurious sort of problems but and you, actually, if you, but you says, wrote individually yeah. I mean you you, you, well, you, in, you, the you in the first one in, catch. in catch yeah we wrote individually totally yeah we didn't so, so you, you planned it out and then you said well, I'll do this you do that we didn't even do that we just said this is our central character this is her dilemma um, let's write some scenes we came back with the scenes and then we said okay, now what happens? We, we haven't got any scenes for this part of the... Let's go all go away and write some... I mean, it's a really strange play. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's a good play, put it like that. But, I mean, we, we could... And did you... I mean, I, I did a, 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 my first job. I left my job as a cub reporter in Bradford and drove down to... Very nervous, I, uh, leaping out into, into the... Pretending to be a professional playwright. Drove down to Pembrokeshire, where David Hare had hired a house where a group of us, including Snoo Wilson and, and, and Howard Brenton and others, uh, were going to write a play about, it was in 1972, uh, direct rule had just happened, internment, Northern Ireland, internment was the summer before, and we were going to write a play that was going to solve the Northern Ireland crisis. And it was called, it was called England's Island. And the thing, I mean, can you imagine as a young playwright, 
uh, the baptism of fire, but also the, you know, what a wonderful way to start. And we did it, we, we had a rule, nobody was writing on their own, but we were writing in twos and threes, because there were seven of us, and we felt that was, that was going to be unwieldy. And the thing that was most striking uh, was that I think we started writing like each other. That when people tried to identify and said, you've obviously written this scene and you've obviously written that scene, um, uh, they were almost always wrong. And there was a kind of core scene which was representing internment through as an analogy uh, of the uh, persecution, uh, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. So a very offensive notion. And several people came up to me and said, why didn't you stop them doing that? Uh, and in fact, I'd written it with Howard <laughs> Brenton. So it, it was, um, which I'm not sure I didn't deny. It was kind of written on the Gary Gilmore principle. You know that with a firing squad, there's always one gun that has a blank and you don't know which it is. So you don't know that you fired the shot that killed him. And, and so we were all, it, it gave us all deni deniability. But it was an extraordinary way of learning about other people's processes, but also mm. a bit about your own. Mm.